Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's, the podcast dedicated to the life and works and ongoing things of Kurt Vonnegut, because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Swim. Kurt! <laughs> we're doing it! Kurt oh, we're continuing to have done it. <laughs> if that's... No, that's not right. We will have continued right. to have done it after it's been done. We can do no wrong, exactly. is the point of this. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, this episode, it's Sirens of Titan, guys. We're oh going chronologically. And yeah. with a lot of authors, you'd think like, oh, it's going to take a while to ramp up to like the big oh, ones, yeah. right? No. Second novel, Sirens of Titan. Yeah, yeah. Huge. That actually makes me realize I'm glad we're not doing like, I don't know, Crichton? Because there's so many oh. like breaks where it's like, okay, now we're going to do the next three Jurassic Park novels. <laughs> but Vonnegut, yeah, everything is like a masterpiece unto itself, totally unrelated universe, and yet they're interconnected. Yeah. And as you just mentioned, I think right out of the gate, well, like... I guess player piano was right out of the gate. And as we yeah. both agreed last episode, we're like, it was good. <laughs> it was fine. You know. Yeah. But Sirens of Titan, I mean, that's gotta be in his top five novels. And <laughs> yeah. it's his second oh, yeah, novel. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. So yeah. I couldn't be more excited. And this is one where I don't know if you've heard the first episode. If you haven't, hey, we're great on it. Check it out. Mm-hmm. But this is a show that's intended for both people who haven't read the book and just want to get the experience of a book of the book you know, without reading it, or people who've read the book and want to, like, book club it with some rad dudes. And if you like Kurt Vonnegut, you've probably read this one. Oh, yeah. Right? I like to think there's at least one middle school student also who just finds this and listens to it because they have a book report on this due tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we could help them out. <laughs> yeah, we're starting to get into ones that could happen for Exactly, All right. yeah. Oh, when we get to Slaughterhouse-Five, we're going to see a huge spike from kids who have book reports <laughs> due the next day. There's no question. Right. Shout out uh, to Timmy, shout out to Jessica, yeah. shout out to... You guys got this. Sirens of Titan is not just my favorite Kurt Vonnegut book, but possibly my favorite book. Was it a big hit? What have you found out about that? From most of what I've read, the thing that really blew up Kurt Vonnegut was mm-hmm. Slaughterhouse-Five. And I was going to say the firebombing of Dresden. <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> really blew him up. Well, yeah, that led to the book. So, you know. Yeah. And that a lot of his books before Slayer then went through reprintings okay. and were discovered and things like that. Yeah. And with Sirens in particular, it kind of had a second wind and then a third wind to describe it like Homer running. All right. Know? Like it came out in 1959 as a paperback and then in 1961 as a hardcover. And then it got kind of a cult fan base among college students in the late 60s and like kind that of makes sense. hippie movement and, you know, Good. Uh, ex- expanding Should things like that. Should have that. And then it got a third wind when Slaughterhouse-Five was a phenomenon and people were like, oh, I should read some of this guy's other stuff. And publishers really? were like, print it, print it. We've got it. Just I get just, it out. I find it hard to believe. I guess it was a different time, even though it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. To the point where you'd be like... This book's based on an upcoming motion picture. I guess I'll read it. I guess I'll read other works by this author as well. I think the last thing I actually was moved to read was probably Cormac McCarthy. Like, you know what I mean? From seeing a movie and then going like, I guess I should read that author. Was sure, I mean, sure. No Country in the Road definitely is like, oh, so this guy's good. I guess I should read some of his stuff. That's happening too with like Atonement. The movie. Yeah. I know that's not like a huge sure. sexy blockbuster, yeah. but I saw that and I was like, I should go read Ian McEwan's stuff. I see. Yeah. He's amazing. You know, like I yeah. feel like movies spark that a lot. And I'm gonna try not to get 
Well, that's for another episode, but I have to steel myself not to like be too bitter about Slaughterhouse Five because it's wonderful. But if you're gonna remember one and only one Vonnegut book, I don't know why it's that one. I, I kind of agree. Look at us. Yeah, there oh, you go. Man. Okay, well, uh, we'll save that we'll for save when it. we get we'll there. Save, yeah, we'll save. and also it, as far as being a huge hit or not, Sirens was pretty well critically regarded. It was nominated for Best Novel at the 1960 Hugo Awards, which is an award for science fiction. That is a sci-fi specific award. Yeah. People who might not know. Yeah. And so he, uh, Kurt probably had a love-hate relationship with that event, you know? Uh, Yeah. And that's, I guess that's the most, I didn't realize this because I'm so steeped in sci-fi authors, but a lot of people I've been talking to about this podcast, their main reaction has been like, either it's what Kurt is to sci-fi. They're like, oh, isn't he just sci-fi? Are you going to get just people who like sci-fi? Or they're like, oh, I didn't know he did any sci-fi. I thought he wrote about the war and Nazis and stuff. So it's interesting that I'm sure he would have been happy to have been recognized, but specifically for science fiction is almost limiting in a way. And he seemed to not like that classification, which is a shame because, I mean, now it's the dominant in terms of money-making Oh, like huge. sci-fi is where it's at, right? Yeah, if you kind of include comics and superheroes into that, like that's I, which it. I do. Like I you want to, you want to revitalize yeah. Marvel, Guardians of the Galaxy. You throw them into space. Everyone loves space. It's not just us anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so feel better, Kurt. Yeah. Wherever when you are. He did an interview in 1966 with a critic named Robert Scholes. And so 1966 is seven years after Sirens came out in 1959. And he said in the interview, I never expect anything good to happen. I never expected the University of Iowa to hire me because Iowa hired him to teach (laughs) in the 60s. And he said, I thought I was going to starve to death. And he basically describes himself as being in a situation where because he got a three-book contract long after Sirens happened and because he got hired by Iowa, then he was, like, finally in a place where he could be a novelist full-time and, like, focus on writing books. And so Sirens was (laughs) a well-regarded book, and it kind of gradually became a hit, but it wasn't successful enough to change his life all of a sudden. Sure. Yeah. Well, he's depressive, so... And also (laughs) he's... Yeah. (laughs) Looks at it all negatively. I read Um, Frank Zappa's autobiography. He was equally bitter about never like getting to regularly compose for a hundred piece orchestra. But you know what? Oh. You're known for being an amazing musician. And so like, I don't know. People should be happy with what they got going on. Yeah. Speaking of which, <laughs> hey. I feel like we should right up top get to some kind of like the bare bones plot synopsis. Yeah. Let's Siren. get into this book Siren for those Titan. people who either haven't read yeah. or are frantically writing notes right now and your teacher for the book report is not going to like all this extra information about kurt's life right right. if you're a middle schooler they want plot details regurgitate also if we do any cussing do not directly (laughs) transcribe it you need to leave that out and pay us you directly transcribe (laughs) so yeah we had talked about doing a speed run plot synopsis do you feel like that's in order let's do it and also if you're new to this show there's a show where (laughs) a lot of podcasts have segments on this show segments just kind of happen when we declare that they are segments and this one's called plot time with Alex and Mike (laughs) I was hoping you would join me but laughter is also good Yeah, plot time with Alex and Mike. Yeah, so... Plot time with Alex and Mike. <laughs> We're going to make this real fast in case you have read the book, or at least that's my strategy, and I think yeah. it'll be kind of fun, so let's see how great. that works out. Yeah. So yeah, main dude, Malachi Constant. Right. Richest man in the world, known for being a playboy gadabout. There's this guy, Winston Niles Rumford, who's basically a rich New Englander. He flew into space just for, like, on a lark, 
And he hit this thing called a chronosynclastic infundibulum, which Vonnegut invented and exists basically in this book's universe. Right. They're everywhere in space, and uh, yeah. they make it really, really hard to explore and navigate deep space. Regardless. <laughs> yeah. And when he, when he flies into this, it's essentially a wormhole into being throughout time and space. Yeah. So Turns like, him into Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. So Winston Rumford and his dog Kazik are on a ship. They fly into this chronosynclastic infidibulum, and that means that suddenly they exist throughout time wherever this band of energy, you could say, puts them. And so from time to time, I think it's every 59 days, he rematerializes in Newport, Rhode Island at his old mansion where his wife Beatrice still lives. Which is so crazy that the vector of his random spiral throughout the universe happens to also include his home. Yeah. Because, like, he flew randomly to a point in space. Anyway, regardless, <gasps> I have problems with or that. is it crazy, yeah. right? Well, but the whole book seems to say there's no fate, so it's then true. why is that? Anyway, <laughs> so he appears every 59 days. He can see the future in the past. He's basically Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. Down to the point where he can see the future, but he can't change it. Right. So, like, uh, his wife Beatrice asks him, well, then tell me what's going to happen and tell me what to do to make that not happen yeah. or happen in a better way. And he says, well, I can't because I foresee the future. And in the future, I did all those things. <laughs> you can't comprehend it living through time as you do. Yeah. But just seeing what I'm going to do doesn't mean I can alter my behavior patterns. So yeah, I yeah. end up doing all the bullshit anyway. So he predicts a bunch of stuff, including that she's going to go to space with Malachi Constant, who is the richest man on Earth and who earned his fortune through sheer luck. That's very important. His motto is like, someone up there likes me. He inherited all his money from his pa, who gained it randomly. Malachi's father builds a massive business from nothing when he's just a broke traveling salesman. And his investment strategy is to just take the Gideon Bible out of a hotel room he's sitting around in in Los Angeles. And letter by letter, he just uses that as the stock market abbreviations of companies to invest in. So the, the first verse... The first word is the, so he invests in... No, Trobert. in, right? In the beginning. Or in, right, in, in, in I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, and so he invests in the company whose stock symbol is it's IN. It's like ichthyoid you know. nitrogen, yeah. Right, right, and then he does the one that's TH, which I think is Trowbridge Helicopter, and so on and so on and so forth. And so that gives Malachi a massive fortune, and he's just an idiot about it all the time. Like, he's he just fought, a playboy yeah. who cares about nothing and does nothing. And then exactly. Winston and Beatrice are people who are very genteel and very patrician. Beatrice especially represented by this portrait of her as a little girl in a white dress with white gloves. So she's your classic. She doesn't engage with life or society. She stays in her ivory tower. Right. Winston, her husband, tells Malachi that he's going to go on this crazy space adventure and there's right. nothing he can do to stop it. Right. He's also going to end up raping, unfortunately, <laughs> Beatrice, yep. conceiving a child, dying on Titan, the moon right. of Saturn. And he tells him cryptic details, which we'll get to. Yeah. And also, <laughs> and a lot of what he tells him is also not that cryptic. He's like, you're going to have a son. The son will have a piece of metal that's his good luck piece. The piece is very, very important. It's the whole MacGuffin of the story. Which is funny you know that, that he tells him that because <laughs> it literally, as you'll find out soon, it doesn't matter if he tells him that or not. It right. would have happened anyway. Yeah. So yeah. I guess none of this matters. But yeah. he's like, so I'll tell you some stuff. I'll be cryptic about other stuff. I guess just because that's what he, he foresaw himself saying in those conversations. Yeah. And yeah. this is also with the plot of the, this is one of the more remarkable and fun things about the plot of this book is the author tells you the entire plot very early on. Your page numbers will vary with whatever edition you have, but by page about 43 in mine, 
Winston has told you everything that's going to happen in the book in, in a general some fashion. way. Yeah. Right. And the, the and yet, excitement is how it happens and why it happens and the right. emotional meaning of it. But you just know everything that's going to happen and then it plays out. And yet I would say it is a really plot driven book. And we'll yeah. talk about this more. I really think it would make a great movie yeah. specifically because it has tons of incredible twists and turns and reveals. Yes. And even though as is mimicked in a later chapter called this is an intelligence test, even though you've been told enough that you should be able to figure out, he does such a great job of you still like, oh, I actually, okay, that fulfills the prophecy, but in a way I didn't expect. Right. There's still like great twists. So Long story short, Beatrice and Malachi do everything they can to not be sent to space. Yes. Through a series of improbable accidents, Malachi loses all his money and is forced to agree when these two random strangers come and say, there's a secret Martian army forming on Mars that will attack Earth. You're right. penniless. Everything in your life is garbage, which is true at that point, not yeah. getting into too many details. Come with us. He's depressed. He agrees. They knock him out. They take him to Mars. Meanwhile, Beatrice is at her home. The Martians show up. They straight up just knock her out and take her to Mars. Like, they don't even... They it's kinda, not by her choice. She's tricked, yeah, unfortunately. She, she's at home watching the one big spaceship on Earth leave Earth. And she's like, I am watching it on TV, leave Earth. I obviously will not leave Earth. Which makes her triumphant because she feels that means she evaded the destiny, yeah. Right. And then the two Martians are there and they're like, hey, what's with that like big metal structure on your property? And she's like, what do you mean big metal structure? And they're like, no, come check it out. And they like trick her into going inside it. And, then and it turns out to also be a spaceship. <laughs> yeah. So... Of course, as Winston's prophesied, everything he said will come true. Spoiler alert. Right. You then cut to Mars. Right. Vast army on Mars. Many people have been recruited. All the disaffected people of Earth who had few connections or whatever. I forget the exact number, but Winston Niles Rumford himself has yeah. founded an army on Mars and recruited all these people. Not only recruited them, but installed a little chip in their head that right. makes them do whatever they're told or they experience great pain. Yeah, and so yeah. we're following a Martian soldier who goes by Unk and knows himself as Unk, but keeps having little memories of his past life, and clearly it's yeah. Malachi. It's Memento. You quickly figure out it's Malachi, yeah. yeah. But I mean in the sense that every time you do something wrong, you get your memory <laughs> wiped, and Unk slash Malachi is a natural, like we're led to believe, rebel, or more than that, he just has a natural curiosity to understand the meaning of life, which the whole is the whole point of the book. Yeah. So he's constantly getting in trouble because he's constantly investigating, like, well, why are we in this army? What are we doing? Right. And they're like, erase that guy's memory again for the <laughs> 60th time. Yeah. And the real commanders of the army are disguised as sort of low-level privates. Like, even the people who are supposed to be its leaders are also antenna-controlled and yes. are also not people who are in charge of their own lives. And so there's a guy named Boaz who is just pretending to be like, I say hey. Boaz. Oh, really? And how'd you say the dog? Rumford's dog? Kazak? I say Kazak. Oh, man. <laughs> now we're... Show's over. Now All we're... Right. Gonna, yeah, let's wrap this up. <laughs> but yeah, continue. I'm going to say Boaz. Uh, Rhymes no, with yeah. Topaz. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. And so he is just pretending to be Unk's best friend, but actually he's basically his monitor. And keeping yes. track of him. He's a private in Unk's regiment, but secretly he's the leader of Unk's whole platoon or whatever. Right. Yeah. And Unk's uh, good, good friend in it is a guy named Stoney Stevenson. Which he only knows because he wrote himself a note memento style that says, right. here's the important things to remember. And one of them is your best friend is this dude named Stoney. Just trust me. 
Signed, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The note has a lot of really wonderful, simple versions of what truth is and like trying to figure out what life we'll is. And that. then there's a big reveal of it's a letter from your cell phone. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then they're preparing for this Martian invasion. And the invasion is... I believe it's like tens of thousands of soldiers in the army, which is an army, but also not nearly enough to conquer Earth. And they intentionally have crummy weapons yeah. and things like that. It ends up being, or the casualty numbers are in the low hundred thousands. So, yeah. yeah. You later. And, and their goal is to attack, let's be clear, every country on Earth simultaneously. Yes. So if you divide it, it's not that <laughs> big of a force. In fact, they describe one man, they're like, uh, the whole invading force of India was one badly burned man with a double barrel shotgun. Right. <laughs> who was like ripped apart by the locals. Yeah. And I think like and the forced to invade America, I think they're landing in like West Palm Beach or something like that. It's like not even. And their gonna... stated goal is to conquer all of America. So the people right. in the army think that they're gonna succeed. Well, basically because right. a chip in their head makes them think that. Right. They're all perfect soldiers. Unk, meanwhile, is trying to escape because the letter told him that this is all bullshit and he needs to escape he needs to find his wife b who you obviously realize is beatrice yeah he needs to find his son chrono and he needs to find his friend stony stevenson he needs to escape then of course i feel like we're broadcasting the twist but that's okay (laughs) that's the way it is yeah everyone's called to like a big event at the parade grounds and there's a dude tied to a stake at the middle of the parade grounds. Yeah. Unk is made, thanks to his antenna, to strangle the dude. He does. It's his best friend, Stoney. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he doesn't know that, I think, forever, maybe, or for a long time to come. He, he gets told really late in the, Really late. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When, in like a, when, the Winston is a fucking dick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about it. yeah. He'll get told later, <laughs> yeah. but for now, you know he doesn't know. So Malachi escapes, and what I think is important to point out, but sort of rush past, and we'll delve into later, <laughs> is he has no memory. So he only has this obscure idea of the abstract goal that it is important to have your family and those you love around you, right. and that that is the meaning of life. And like, even if you're just dropped into a situation with no memory and no knowledge, that's what you should do, is try to find your family, if yeah. one exists. Right. So he tries to find his wife and kid. He finds B who is working on Mars, teaching the Martians how to not breathe because they yeah. they don't breathe in space. They don't use spacesuits. They just don't breathe. There's a very, <laughs> I feel like, and it's pretty good sci-fi yeah. world building, I feel like, too. There's a thing which is called Schliemann breathing, which yeah. is a method where you eat, consume oxygen pills. Called and goofballs. Then, called goofball. And then you just train your body to not try to breathe yeah. because you know that you've taken enough pills to have oxygen in your body, and it's fine. And so she runs a school for that. Yeah. And then Chrono is like in school and he plays a really goofy sport called German Batball. And they just live on Mars. And you learn later that Chrono was conceived while Malachi and Beatrice were in space on the way to... Yeah, so they were abducted by the same ship, being held in the same ship. And as they were traveling to Mars, Malachi was intentionally goaded psychologically by Winston Niles Rumford's men into feeling that to prove himself and his manhood, he had to rape this random girl in this room. Right. So he just went in and did it. And then in retrospect, they're like, by the way, that was the woman that you were prophesied to rape that you thought 
Yeah. No matter what I do in life, the one thing I won't do is rape that woman. <laughs> uh, too late. Sorry, man. And, of course, as was prophesied, you had a kid. The kid's name's Chrono. As you'd expect, these lobotomized people with no memory of him don't care. Like, don't <laughs> care that he's rescuing them. Don't see him as being important in their lives or anything. Right. Chrono does indeed have a little metal good luck piece that he kisses to win German Batball. Yeah. The author steps out again of the fourth wall to say, like, that's super important. And just remember that. <laughs> and then the invasion happens, right? They launch Take the <laughs> they launch the whole force to invade the Earth and uh, be in Chrono head toward Earth. But a ship with just isn't it? It's just a ship Boaz and Malachi right. only. That ship. So they get left behind in what seems like an accident because they like slept in or whatever. I forget the details. Yeah. Obviously, all part of the plan. Right. So they end up alone in a ship. Yeah. Yeah. And then early in the book, when Winston is telling Malachi everything that's going to happen to him, he says, "This is going to be your trajectory. You're going to be on Earth, then you're going to be on Mars, then you're going to be on Mercury, then you're going to be on Earth again." And then you're going to be on Titan. These are going to be where the you will of, die. Where you will die. This is the set of planets that's going to happen to you. And so Malachi, who was on Earth and now is on Mars, he and Boaz, their ship ends up going to Mercury. Yeah, that's what happened to him. And Mercury is a planet in the book where one side always faces the sun, one side always doesn't. And what I don't life know there if that's is, true astronomically. Dude. I don't. I, I don't, think, I don't it think it is. I think most of how he handles planets is kind of yeah. But they go to Mercury and. Mercury is a planet where there are caves that you can live in. And the way their ship works, the navigation system is pretty hands-off, and it's just supposed to go to a planet and find bottom. Like It's find like an land. iPhone. There's one button right. you press, and it <laughs> exactly. takes you to wherever it was pre-programmed to go. <laughs> it yeah. is like an iPhone. But uh, it's sophisticated in that it can land anywhere, even tricky places, right? because it has lots of good sensors on the bottom of the ship. Yeah. Yeah. And so the ship thinks it's finding the bottom of Earth, just find land and stop. But instead, it goes to Mercury and goes all the way down this crazy Miles system underground. of caves. Because it turns up. out Mercury is a super porous system of caves, which I yeah. don't, again, I don't think that's true. <laughs> but in this book, it is. So Malachi and Boaz are in the bottom of Mercury, right? In all these caves. And they have plenty of food to live, but they're stuck and because they can't balls. navigate back out. And so they have oxygen, right. but I think it's important because there's definitely a monastic sort of like vow of silence thing, I think, being explored here they can't speak because while you're doing the schleeman breathing you can't open your mouth so they live for several years alone naked in caves without the ability to speak but everything else is taken care of they have food and water and everything yeah yeah there's one kind of creature on mercury called the harmonium and it's sort of a it's sort of a amoeba level creature but it's a little sail type creature that lives on vibrations it's described as like a diamond shaped piece of balloon like if you cut a balloon a diamond out so it's just like a little rubbery flap yeah and they only do like two or three things they eat sound waves and vibration yeah they filter the phosphorescent glow from the walls such that they look a different color yeah it's like yellow or aquamarine yellow or aquamarine the point being that if you want you can and you people do (laughs) you can (laughs) you can slap them up on the wall and like make drawings and symbols so boaz becomes obsessed with feeding them vibrations like music and stuff yeah meanwhile malachi doesn't give a shit about them except when he starts stumbling upon rooms where the harmoniums have been laid out in an order obviously by an intelligence because they say like full sentences in english it says stuff like (laughs) it's an iq quiz 
yeah. think about it, Unc, or like <laughs> really torturous stuff when you know in retrospect that Winston Niles Rumford occasionally materializing on Mercury is the one who's doing it. Yeah, but it's yeah. so funny to me that he keeps them there for years. He knows because he can see the future that they will stay there as long as they're going to stay there. Right. Yeah, yeah. He knows the day when they'll finally escape. <laughs> Yet he leaves messages like, come on, Unc, you got to think harder, you dummy. And uh, just sort of teasing the idea that you, the reader, should be able to figure this out. Did you? Yeah. I did not figure out the intelligence test. I remembered how the test worked this time reading through, and it's long enough since I read it that I don't remember uh, how I did okay. the first time. I distinctly remember feeling like a dummy, which I think is how clever it is, because yeah. Boaz starts to like it there and wants to stay. But Malachi, at least, leads this hellish existence for years, and the solution is apparent enough that it could be like a riddle on a popsicle stick. Yeah. Like, you reading the book should have been able to figure out what was going to happen, and yet yeah. I didn't. And when it's revealed, I was like, oh, my God, we could have spared <laughs> him all this suffering. Yeah, so basically, the, the simple solution is all they have to do is flip the ship upside down yeah. and hit the go button again, because then the ship will think that it's taking off, They'll because think, it won't think, sense yeah. there's any ground, and it will use its sophisticated bottom sensors to navigate its way back out of the cave. Yeah. And so this flip is something that Malachi figures out, and he's like, great, let's go, we're getting out of here. And Boaz is like, no, I can help these harmoniums. This is the first time I've felt really good about myself in life, because right. Boaz remembers everything, and he remembers like, oh, I had kind of a crummy life before, and like now I'm a person who helps people, and I can just help harmoniums and hurt no one by helping them. I'm going to stay here on Mercury with all this food and yeah. just hang out. He becomes uh, the caretaker of the harmoniums. He's happy and he wants to stay. So Malachi yeah. leaves alone. And he Malachi leaves. He goes to Earth, right? He's back on Earth. We're continuing the trajectory. And in the meantime, Winston has built the Church of God, the Utterly Indifferent on Earth, which is a religion based around a space wanderer. This is where it come starts to Earth. sounds crazy and, as we condense it. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, back on Earth. And there's this prophecy that, oh, the space wanderer is going to come. From Winston Niles Rumford, of course. Yeah. And, and, and he says explicitly... I'm founding a religion. Why should you believe in my religion? Because I'm the first holy man in recorded history that can tell you the future. And then it happens. Right. I'll prove it over and over and over again. And of right. course, he's very quickly able to then amass followers who are like, yeah, that seems pretty good. <laughs> so they join his religion. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the main holy site of it is his mansion in Rhode Island. Yeah. And he's also given the surviving Martian invaders who are people. He's given them like priority to be sellers yes. outside of it. So B and so, Chrono sorry, are sorry outside. Sorry to but really important to know, I think, before you get into the next leg is sure. the Martian invasion went horribly. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was always planned to go horribly. We, of course, thought aliens were invading. So we fought back with all of our patriotism and like love of Earth. And so we slaughtered the Martians. Like right. all over Earth, the Martians were killed in the most gruesome ways. And it turned out they were woefully not well armed. Yeah. It was a terribly put together plan. And what's crazy is Winston Niles Rumford put it together. And he publicly admits that he did. And he <laughs> says the reason he did is that all Martians were dedicated to the proposition of killing themselves in a ghastly suicidal massacre yeah. from an external place in order to galvanize the people of earth and make peace it's basically if you've read the watchman watchman really it's is Veidt's yeah. plan it's the same plan which is stage an alien invasion because yeah. finally maybe that will make humans realize their petty differences are nothing to squabble over blah 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 yeah, yeah so what's crazy about this book is he admits it he goes like look 
I have all power and time power and omniscience. I made this crazy alien invasion happen that I knew you would destroy right. to show that you should all be galvanized. Now, I will lead the religion that honors the dead and galvanizes humanity as one. Yeah. I, who did that, like I'm the devil in my own religion. I did the thing, <laughs> but now I'm going to let us get all, pa- all get past it. So by the time Malachi lands, that's done. Like that's yeah. now the dominant religion on earth already. Yeah, yeah, everyone believes in it. Everyone's waiting for him. There's a prophecy of exactly what he's going to say, the and he says coming. it. And then he's... Of, you mean of Unk coming, right? Yeah, yeah. Their main prophecy is that on this day and this year, the space wanderer will come, and he'll say this specific thing. Yeah. Lo and behold, Unk slash Malachi arrives back on Earth on the day that was foretold. Yeah. Says the thing he was meant to say. <laughs> the religion is true, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and ever, like he says it, and then they lead him to a place where what he said is carved into like a big thing. Like it's yeah. like, oh yeah, obviously we're gonna do that. Yeah, Unk loves it, by the way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> finally feels it's like, oh, like this is the happy ending of the book. Of course, it's not. Yeah, and so he's paraded through America because he lands in West Barnstable, uh, Massachusetts, which is a, a Kervonigate uh, place in real life, mm-hmm. and then he is led to I think it's Newport where the ship is then because there's another planet to go right he did earth mars mercury earth again now he's got to go to titan so he's led up the longest ladder they can possibly find to the spaceship where he's going to be sent to space they also tell b and chrono who were outside this mansion selling religious trinkets of the religion they're like hey get in here too you're going to come too we're going to introduce you to each other and tell you what happened again and now you know each other so it's basically the prestige winston niles rumford's prestige for his religion B and Chrono crash landed in the jungle and survived in the jungle during the Martian invasion. So there, there's only like two dozen survivors of the Martian invasion. They're right. among them. So Winston Niles Rumford finally takes all our main characters, puts them together in what should be happy, I guess, because it's the achievement of the goal, right. but basically publicly shames them yes. <laughs> and exiles them. And Malachi specifically in their religion Because remember, he was the richest dude on earth and he earned it through no work of his own. He represents one of the worst possible ways to lead your life, which is the belief that God favors you just because you've had dumb luck, which is considered a great sin in this religion. And I think something Vonnegut was truly trying to push as he thinks that's one of the sources of evil in the world. And then Beatrice represents this idea, as we said, of thinking you're holier than thou, not engaging with life, being separate. So basically, Winston brings them up on this golden stage in front of his followers, publicly says, you got raped by him, you didn't know this, but you were my wife, like fills them all in, catches them up to speed. You're Malachi. In our religion, you two basically represent the two worst way to live. So for the good of everyone of Earth, we're going to exile you as like a healing symbol that will help us all come together. Sorry that it fucks your life up, but like you're just two people in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. I kind of get the impression that he's also kind of being petty and bitter. I think so, yeah. Because he even yeah. he even makes a point of, he's like, hey, Malachi, if you deserve to stay here and have a nice thing happen to you, prove oh. that you did a good thing in your life. Malachi's like, well, I barely remember anything, but I remember I had a friend. And, uh, and he Winston says, so someone liked like, me. That must have been important. Yeah, like, and Winston is like, good, yeah. you did have a friend. His name was Stoney Stevenson, and you strangled him on Mars. And he's like, no. And then <laughs> and he's, yeah. then and he's, he's like, truly well, why? crushed. I think the implication is there that it's like, well, why did I strangle him on Mars? Well, so that at this moment I could tell you that and you would docilely accept exile. Yeah. So it's like Winston Niles Rumford's show. He has it all in hand. <laughs> so as prophesied, he forces them all to leave on a ship that will take them to Titan to die for basically the purposes of putting on a show that 
ratifies his new religion. Yeah. So for better or worse, that religion becomes the main religion on earth. And one of the most most interesting things of the book that I want to get into is in the beginning of the book, it explicitly says that this book is being written at a time in the far future where this religion has made it possible for everyone on earth to be fully spiritually fulfilled and yeah. find the meaning of life within themselves to a sure degree. So it's Amazing. almost explicitly good that this happened, even though it involves so much suffering and terrible shitting upon our favorite characters. Yeah, yeah. So, they get to Titan. <laughs> right. So now we're on to final planet, Titan. Yeah. And we find out that Winston and Kazakh the dog, in the within this Cronus and Classic Infidibulum, there's one place where they're always materialized just because of the, I don't know, geography of it. And it's yeah. Titan. So he built a house that looks like the Taj Mahal, and he's just always hanging out there and spending time. And just like the Crystal Palace on Mars and Watchmen. Yeah, it's, it's very, very Watchmen. Reading it again, I was like, oh, Alan Moore's read this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which hadn't occurred to me before, but yeah. Yeah, because yeah, we we'll get into it later, but we were thinking about like, oh, what's related reading for this? But like Watchmen is so so close, close to it that it's it like almost, didn't even yeah. come up you know there's it's like there's a dr manhattan there's a fake alien invasion it's crazy how close it yeah. is yeah and so now they're on titan and we meet winston and also we meet an alien named Salo, and Salo is from the planet <gasps> tralfamador Salo, i can't believe we are different on all single, of these yeah. books are the worst <laughs> okay good did you ever think though that it could be Salo or Salo because it's salvo plus halo because he no, represents destruction, but he also is the most angelic character in the Oh, that's so wonderful. So Salo's alien, he's from Trelfamador, and he's an alien, and that's a planet where the aliens are all machines that kind of built themselves. Yes. Real quick, I think it's probably what happened to the player piano planet after we left it. Yeah, I thought, yeah, I was thinking, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it totally makes it because it's yeah. the backstory of the alien race there is that there was a uh, like biological, uh, I don't know, carbon based. They don't species. say they're humanoids, we just know that they were biological. Right. Yeah. And they kept building machines to do more and more of their stuff for them, and eventually they just built machines to replace them. No, like a, well, okay, well, yes, but with a little indirectly. wrinkle that I think is yeah. very poignant. They built a machine to do the ultimate thing. It's the same as Douglas Adams' life, the universe, and everything. They built a machine whose job was to tell them or figure out the true answer of why are we right. here, though? Like, why do we exist? What is our purpose? And the right. machine said, I can calculate with absolute certainty that you don't have a particular purpose. I'm sorry. <laughs> nothing, really. Like, you're just here to take up space and dick around. Right. There's no particular reason you came into existence. And that <laughs> so disturbs them, is the implication, or like, that it causes massive religious divisions that lead to nuclear wars and they wipe themselves out right. so that all that's left is the robots and the robots don't mind not having a particular meaning of life yeah. so they're like okay well i guess we'll just pick up and keep doing society <laughs> so now it's a planet where the dominant life form is robots and so and then and this Salo planet is one of them Salo. <laughs> Salo. No. So uh, Salo, his job is to leave this planet and go as far as he can into space with a message. And his other job is to not open the message, just to give to somebody. And his yeah, ship... that's a mission that his whole society unanimously agreed was important. Right. He would travel to the farthest reaches of the universe with a message from their civilization 
to whatever civilization he finds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His ship is powered by a substance we should call the universal will to become, and it's, it's sort of a science fiction-y Red power source. Red matter from Star Trek. Yeah. Exactly. It's the magic thing that is like, you put this in your ship, it goes faster than light. I don't want to explain it. I'm right. a sci-fi author. Get off my nuts. <laughs> right. I believe that's from a letter to his publisher. <laughs> <laughs> Salo's ship breaks down on Titan. And so from there, he sends messages back saying, I need help. Uh, send me a replacement part and then I can keep going. And his planet, Trailfamador, sends messages back. But the way they're communicated is with manipulating all of Earth's civilizations across history into building just shapes and things like that that he'll be able to see. Like the Great Wall of China was a message that I forget exactly what it is, but it's essentially, yeah, we got it. We'll send something. That was why the Great yeah. Wall of China was built. And the, I think, like... <laughs> the pyramids were a thing. The pyramids uh, is yeah. a message that says, like, the part was delayed, but it'll be there soon. Just yeah. don't worry. That kind of thing. Um, and so you learn so that the all of Earth is, history yeah. is just a product of one alien on Titan trying to get a replacement part for a spaceship. Yes. Tralfamador uses the universal will to become in a way that we don't need to understand as a ray that can reach out instantaneously faster than light and affect the mental state of any creature anywhere in the universe, including a whole planet of creatures. So everything humanity has done, as Winston foretold, is basically the way you could think about it is Earth didn't need to have intelligent life. Intelligent life was developed by this magic ray so that we could develop metalworking, so that yeah. we could smelt a square piece of metal, so that Chrono, Malachi and B's son, could be born, so that he could physically carry it from Earth to Titan, because yeah. that was the fastest way to get a replacement part for this guy's car. Yeah, and so <laughs> learning all that means... Everybody was a puppet, including Winston. Winston was being and manipulated Winston by this whole thing. Has this weird thing where, like, obviously Salo's his best friend because he provided, he built the antennas that went in the heads of the Martians. He built the ships that the Martians used. Salo has done everything he can, and in fact, Salo's depicted as like a millhouse. Like he's a doting <laughs> friend. He's like anything you say, Skip. As a robot. I'm so fascinated by love and brotherhood and the idea of friendship. I just want to explore that. So, like, if you need something to, from me, I'm of course I'm happy to help. And yeah. he's like, don't call me Skip. I hate your fucking guts. <laughs> because Winston knows, which is so hypocritical, yeah. he's used his time powers to control everything and everyone around him. But he knows he only did that <laughs> right. within the confines of his own mind control. And there's many, many images in the book that I think really point to this idea of this nesting doll of control. Yeah. Like the idea that you can always zoom out, like your universe will just be a molecule in another universe. Like I assume that if we could zoom out even further, the Tralfamadorians are being controlled by something. And even if you aren't being as directly controlled as in a magic ray is controlling your brain, I think the implication is very clear that Vonnegut is trying to say, you don't have control over the things that happen in your life. Yeah. Everyone has to do, de- even the characters who are the closest to godlike in this universe had no control over the things they did. All Winston can do is retroactively try and convince himself that, no, I think when I founded that religion, that part was free will. 
Like, I know they were controlling <laughs> me mostly, but, like, he tries to convince himself. Like, yeah. I think I negotiated a deal for Earth within the confines of that. And Salo doesn't know. Like, <laughs> doesn't right. know the extent of... And B, similarly, spends the rest of her life after she finds this out writing an epic poem slash essay trying to explain how, well, of course, then that means the people working on the Great Wall of China, of course, were being controlled. But in their day-to-day lives when they loved their children, who's to say that wasn't free will? Or yeah, who's to say yeah. people in cultures that didn't create any great structures, maybe they had free will? So, like, every character has this desperate need to not be controlled, and every character should admit that you are. You have no control over your life. Sorry. Yeah. Even Winston in the end. As B and Chrono and Malachi are arriving on Titan, Winston and Kazakh are getting the equivalent of sick. Like there's a lot of sunfire and stuff. You're gonna make me cry, dude. And it's because there's like solar activity on the sun of some kind, and it's going to knock their chronosynclastic infundibulum track way off course. So they're gonna get knocked all the way out of the solar system. Which will cause they're immortal, so they can't die, but they will begin manifesting on a series of other planets in another system. And Forever. they'll have no knowledge of what's going on in Earth anymore. It's no longer yeah. their purview. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and Winston yeah. is very, very unhappy about it. And he's like, listen, Salo, if you're going to be such a jerk to me this whole time, show me the message. That's the one thing I want well, from you. Yeah. If you're actually, Can I read actually the things. line, though? Yeah, yeah. Of yeah, yeah, him yeah. fading away? Because yeah. I definitely wanted to get to it. It did, like I told you, finishing this on a plane trip, like I, this line made me ball to yeah. the point where I had to hide from the people next to me. <laughs> the epilogue is fucking brutal, you guys. Like the yeah. wrap up is sad, oh, so man. gird yourself. But I think this really strikes it. One of the main things Kurt Vonnegut's trying to say, and it really reminds me of, if you've seen it, I think you'll know what I mean. Anton Chigurh getting hit by the car at the end of No Country and then oh. walking away or the protagonist being killed off screen where you're like, well, nothing fucking matters then. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the line. As Winston and Kazak fade away, Winston's fingers, I guess, are holding Kazak's choke chain. But then the chain was empty. An explosion on the sun had separated man and dog. A universe schemed in mercy would have kept man and dog together at least. The universe inhabited by Winston Niles Rumford and his dog was not schemed in mercy. So Kazak had been sent ahead of his master alone on a great mission to nowhere and nothing. And Ooh. like, to me, if you've ever deeply loved a dog, imagining <laughs> your dog that doesn't know what the fuck is going on. It's funny because I bet most people would cry for the human. But I was like, now that dog's going to wake up on an alien planet and be like, where's my dude? Yeah. The dude that I'm constantly with and look for him forever. And that makes me cry. Well, that, <laughs> and it's such a kick in the ass, too, because like the dog seems so random and a little and bit inseparable comedic. inseparable from Rumford, like just yeah. an accessory to and him. And early in the book, he's just like, oh, yeah, I guess he just wanted to put like a Mastiff in the book. All right. But then it all comes together. He put like, the Mastiff oh. in. To yeah. show you that even God has cruelty. to lose his dog. Like, yeah. yeah. The true cruelty. <laughs> and it makes Kurt seem so cruel. Yeah. But he's like, sorry. And that's uh, the way it is. And so when... His dying s- wish, so to speak. When Salo yeah. gets asked to show him the message, Salo's like, no, I can't. It's my entire mission. I can't. And so then Winston chews him out. They get in a big fight. He's like, we were never friends. And they, they break each other's hearts. And then Salo... A repeated theme because Boaz and Malachi break each other's hearts in the yeah, caves. But we'll get too. to it. Yeah. yeah. And so Salo runs off from this. And then is you know, like, you know what? Fine, I'll open the message. I'll come show it to you. But he's too late. So he's like, well, right. hey, Malachi and being Chrono, Who just you, arrived can, you can look at the message because yeah. you're here. I got to show it to somebody. It's a single dot 
and dot in my plants language is greetings. That was my yeah. whole that was my whole trip. That was why I did this. <laughs> turns and out. subsequently the purpose and meaning of human life on earth, the whole of human existence, right. is to get basically ASL, like an IM message, <laughs> from one planet to another. Yeah. And they admittedly themselves, like, this is one of many minor civics projects. Like, it's the equivalent of us declaring National Broccoli Day. They're like, you know, it would be nice, like, let's send a message out, you know, like a time right. capsule. It's yeah, not yeah. even a big deal to their society. It's just a random thing they did. Yeah. And it fucking ruins everything of, for the whole of human history. Yeah. And it's so believable to me. Maybe yes. I'm crazy, but I'm like, <laughs> why wouldn't the universe be that way? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Salo's like, great, there's the message, and disassembles himself. Because basically he's crushed. learned enough human perspective to understand what's so fucked up about that to the point yes. that he can't bear to live anymore. Yeah. Like, from observing humans, he seems to have understood empathy in a way that I assume the people on Trafalmador would not get. Yeah, yeah. Like, he gets why it's so fucked up and he kills himself. <laughs> and that brings us to, I think, straight to the epilogue, because now yeah. Salos disassembled, Winston and Kazik are gone, Malachi, B, and Chrono are just on this planet, and B writes her book that you were describing. And one part of the prophecy was that a thing Winston told Beatrice is that, listen, there is a silver lining of this, because you will find love with Malachi that you never found with me that you never it's going to be a thing and Vonnegut says that in this epilogue on Titan they do find love for each other because they start taking care of each other it's still like as miserly as possible with the happiness because he says (laughs) they live for like 20 more years on Titan all separately never seeing each other except very rarely Yeah, and it says in the last year before they all died they started to feel true like love for each other so apparently the first 19 years they just were bitter and full of hate but eventually <laughs> i guess they find true love and like appreciation for one another yeah, yeah. but it is it's sad i mean because boaz i think represents someone who finds a way to be truly happy and find some form of self-fulfillment and actualization i don't know if that's true of chrono because basically chrono runs off to live as a bird <laughs> yeah on, the, on the titan thing. there's yeah. these things called titanic blue jays Chrono goes to live with the birds. He doesn't speak human. He never sees his family. He lives as a bird. He creates his own crude religion where he builds these weird shrines. But it's all meaningless. And I really don't know if Kurt's even making a statement or if Chrono's life represents a way of achieving spiritual fulfillment or if Chrono's life represents like, you know, if your life is fucked up enough, there's just no coming back. Because to me, he seems kind of like a crazy ruined life yeah meanwhile b exists as she always has in a state of aristocratic delusion right where even though she lives in her own like human waste and filth she acts as if she's living the life of a noble woman and she basically once a year malachi will come and clean all the piles of shit and garbage yeah out of her mansion and she just pretends that he's like the maid who's coming to clean <laughs> for the day right but vonnegut does like hint hint nudge nudge but really they love each other on yeah. some level. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess. I can't. But and then Malachi's project during all this time was to try to rebuild Salo. And, and his ship, because he has the missing part. So he's like, right. I may he's as well like, see if it fits. Let's go. Of course, and it he, fits perfectly. The ship starts right up. <laughs> yeah. When he, and he thinks he can't get Salo to work. He does one last visit with B, and B dies. And then Salo walks in and says, 
Yeah, you actually put me together fine. I just didn't know if I wanted to wake up or not. You know, he was, was so depressed sad. that for yeah. the last like five years or some undisclosed amount of time, he was conscious, but he was just staying turned off because he was so yeah. depressed. And, <laughs> and then Sayla's like, I guess I'll just continue on my journey. Do you want me to drop you back off on Earth or something? Like, I could do that. And Malachi's like, I guess. And so Salo brings Malachi to a bus stop in Indianapolis, Indiana, yeah. and drops him off. And Malachi is clearly about to die. So Salo leaves him with a essentially hypnotism to have an experience of heaven where he'll see Stony and everybody. I know it's for a good reason now, but it's like, stop fucking controlling everyone (laughs) down to the point of what's in their brain. Let him die as like a free human dying. But Salo doesn't see it that way. Yeah. He does him a favor. By hypnotizing him such that when he dies, his brain has a specifically delusional experience that is very, very pleasant. Basically, his best friend, Stoney, comes down in a golden ship and is like, come with me, we're going to heaven. (laughs) And that's the end of the book. And it ends with the lines Malachi says, now that he's aware of everything he did, and that a whole planet-wide religion thinks he's the devil. He's like, why would I get into heaven? He asks him that. (laughs) And he says, hey, I don't know. Don't ask me why. Somebody up there likes you. Which is important because... That's the opposite of everything Winston Niles Rumford is trying to teach. It's the opposite of what the Church of God, the Utterly Indifferent, holds as its belief. Yeah. And it's kind of the opposite of what the point of the book is. Yet at the last second, to feel good in dying and to face death happily, everything is thrown out the window so that he can believe... Like, that's what... Now, right. that, now that we're finally done with this segment, <laughs> if we're just, like, diving in now... Because basically, someone up there likes me is saying... I interpret my good fortune to mean that I deserve it and God favors me. And one of the main points of the book seems very clearly to be that Kurt Vonnegut thinks that's bullshit because it makes rich people think they deserve to be rich and not help poor people in any category. I don't just mean financially, but you know what I mean. And that's one of the great insights of this book, I think, is that so much of our lives, either if we're having a struggle, we think that it means we're destined to always live a life of struggle or that we're cursed or that we must des- have sinned and deserve some c- this punishment. And that if you're incredibly lucky and blessed, you start to feel like you deserve it and you start to lack empathy. And Kurt is saying, that's bullshit either way. God doesn't care about you to the level of being involved in your individual twists and turns of your life. Stop thinking that God cares about that. God is utterly indifferent to you. Yeah. And that's freeing because now you can start to think like, oh my God, my loved one died in front of me, but that doesn't mean I'm destined to only have suffering the rest of my life and I deserved it and, you know, whatever. However, Malachi Constant's personal slogan well, I don't know. I guess somebody up there likes me. That becomes the thing that the church like spits on and reviles. Yeah. Yet it's the final line of the book. And as you're reading it, back me up on this. You're really happy <laughs> that he feels that way. Like you want Malachi to get something nice at the end of his life. Yeah, you do. Yeah. So why shouldn't we hate Malachi? Do you agree with the religion as presented <laughs> in this book? <laughs> I think. Well, I think this book, in a lot of ways, is leading up to all his other books, but also leading to Cat's Cradle in particular, because I think it's about a lot of there's a lot there's harmless untruths within the truth of are those FOMA are the harmless untruths? I believe so. Yeah. What's the group called? I know a Grand Faloon is a fake one, and then a well a, Kar- a Karas, Karas is the yeah. 
Did you think, but what's a caress where the two people are so intimately linked they always die within 24 hours? I think that's a dupress. I'm wondering, do you think Malachi and B could be a dupress? Because. <laughs> oh, because of the death timing. Well, we're also, the death timing is ex- explicitly mentioned. Yeah. You know Winston's not because he's never going to die. So by definition, yeah. they're not going to die within 24 hours of each other. <laughs> and I just feel like I know you're going to hit on this book kind of builds at least one element of the world for almost every Vonnegut book that will yeah. come out ever. That actually, so I'm wondering if the concept of the Dupras, I'm trying to get Cat's Cradle in here too, you know? <laughs> Well, I think we can go straight into a whole new segment. I think it's one we did last time, but it's Recurring Characters Update. Because this book is loaded with... I know when we did Player Piano, there were certain things like the supercomputer and things like that that are in, you know, past Monica oh. Works. But Mac. this book has Trelfamador from Slaughterhouse-Five. It has Kazakh, who comes up again in Breakfast of Champions. It has, I think on page three of mine, it has a little girl named Wanda June. There's a Vonnegut play called Happy Birthday, Wanda June, where she's a main character. One of the Martian agents is George M. Helmholtz, who is pretending to be a high school band teacher, but in a lot of Kurt's short stories, there is a high school band teacher named George M. Helmholtz. <laughs> Which I love that. So great for all those books. Like, you imagine that he's secretly a Martian agent that whole time, that whole but time, it doesn't yeah. come up in this story. Just never mentioned. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just a head yeah, yeah, he's doing his job <laughs> being a normal band teacher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this segment could be a whole lot of things. And even just things from Kurt's life, like Cape Cod and Indianapolis. And also the the way the people in the Church of God, the Utterly and Different Works, is is that they will put weights on themselves or bad makeup on themselves and things like that to Harrison make them equal Bergeron. to other people, which is straight up Harrison Bergeron. But right. it's probably, and if you've read any Vonnegut short story, it's probably Welcome to the Monkey House or Harrison Bergeron. So yeah, yes, we didn't mention that the Church of God, the Utterly Indifferent, adopts the Harrison Bergeron model. Yeah, which was something I I don't want to jump to Vonna what in the middle of another segment, <laughs> but I did think it was funny that. And that's another thing I don't know if I agree with, and I don't even know if Kurt is saying it's good or bad. But the Church yeah. of the Utterly Indifferent wear handicaps. So if you're strong, you wear weights. If you're beautiful, you hide your face. If you have great vision, you wear glasses that give you worse vision. Right. The idea of like communism and leveling the playing field. Yeah, which on a seems very cr- fundamental level. But it seems crazy to me because like, for example, he says... A lot of women in the church who have just through dumb luck been given the great advantage of natural beauty had to handicap themselves to not be so beautiful. I don't think life's that simple. Having natural beauty as we've seen it cracked like is... Not necessarily the key to happiness, just as having the most money in the world is not the key to true lasting happiness. Oh, yeah. Um, like the lottery wrecks people. Right. And <laughs> and being stunningly beautiful can cause you to be, like, your contributions or thoughts to be totally overlooked because people assume if you're beautiful, if you, especially yeah, if you're a beautiful woman, yeah. that's your main contribution to the, whatever room you're in. Right. So I'm like... Who decides what is a true advantage or disadvantage? Having your face be super symmetrical is both an advantage and a disadvantage. So how do you handicap that? But at the same time, this book and Harrison Bergeron mentioned many times the whiplash model. If you, did you see the movie Whiplash? Actually, I haven't. I know the general idea. Just that, like, only through insane struggle, including deaths. Yeah. Like Rumford says, if you want to change the world, you must have a genial willingness to shed the blood of others. Only violence and struggle can create greatness is the idea. And like he says, Winston says to Unk when he doesn't know he's Malachi, 
he describes Malachi's whole sad story, and he describes B's whole sad story, and he tells him about the rape, and he says, although it may be interesting to note that this supremely frustrated man, like who struggled more than any other Martian, is the only Martian to ever write a book of philosophy, which he's kind of kidding because he's referring to Unk's long letter to himself where he's trying to sort out how the world works. And he says, and this supremely frustrated woman who's suffered more than any other Martian woman is the only Martian woman to ever write a book of poetry. So like Vonnegut also obviously believes that struggle breeds greatness. So the handicaps make sense. But I also, to me, the idea of handicapping people to equalize society is so obviously like a 1984 dystopian thing, not a real suggestion. Yeah. Well, that, do you think he meant it? Well, that's why, (laughs) that's why I felt the need to bring cat's cradle into it so much is that I think the church and a lot of the systems he's presenting, he's basically presenting systems as uh, number one, you should take the ones that make you feel better and make the world work for you because there's no answer. <laughs> so oh, I, do but something. it doesn't mean they're but, true. And, and yeah. second thing <laughs> that no system will cover everything. No system totally makes sense. No system fully explains everything. And even even the prophecy in the story, it's not just that it doesn't fill everything in in a way that leaves you like suspense. Like it's not comprehensive for what's going to happen to the characters because like when malachi is like being driven and then helicoptered away from rumford's mansion early in the book and he's been told listen you're going to be on earth then mars then mercury then earth again then titan malachi makes the jump of oh i'm gonna die on titan like obviously if i'm taken to titan last he makes in my two life crazy i'm jumps. obviously gonna die on titan Which, but that doesn't yeah. happen he dies on earth like it's a it's That's a last mi- it's a last minute like oh i got brought back to well, earth and then i died there's, but there's one yeah. more stop even that prophecy by an all-seeing being that's supposed to be totally comprehensive leaves off a key trip well interestingly enough rumford never says he'll die on titan he just says that's the last place he's aware that he'll be and rumford leaves the solar system before he goes to earth right so obviously he didn't foresee that he doesn't know that salo is going to wake up and take him to earth and there's so much packed in there because like if you remember in that malachi is using a fake name because it's like you know if you're Whoever the fuck, if you're Johnny Depp traveling to a special event, yeah, you, he yeah. wears, I remember because it's, it's awesome. He, uh, <laughs> he wears a fake beard and dark glasses and he has a fake name. And the spaceship that he's prophesied to travel to all these places on is called the whale. And the last bit in that chapter oh. is he's flying away and the guy goes, that's an interesting name. And he's like lost in thought because of what you said. So he's like, what, Malachi? <laughs> like tipping or whatever. <laughs> and the guy's like, no, I thought your name was Jonah. Which is the fake yeah, name he gave. Right. Obviously, Jonah gets swallowed in the whale and travels to strange lands. So that's yeah, like yeah. on the nose. But I liked it. I noticed it this time. That's great. And with the larger religion stuff, I feel like we can go straight into another segment called Vana What? Vana What? And with Vana What, with this book, I know there's a uh, little thing we wanted to get into. Not that the substance of it oh, is I've little, but it's a tiny part of the book where when B and Chrono return to Earth yeah. and they're lost in the Amazonian jungle and they become very, very close in that situation, they deal with a tribe of Amazonian cannibals. And yes. I don't know, Kurt, come on, man. Kurt has a problem like, with, he definitely <laughs> has like his eras. I think we referenced Rudyard Kipling last time. Yeah. And it still rings true. Kurt Vonnegut did imagine that African tribes were like dancing around, eating people, having crazy heathen ceremonies. (laughs) He has a very insulting, simplistic view, especially of literally like the tribes of Africa. Yeah. And for for writing a book in 1959, he should be like a little, probably a A little little more. more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that it's not something that the book hinges on, but like, I don't know, man, come on. Yeah. Let's see. He's got a line. Oh, 
If we're in Vanawat, yeah, I got, we are. I got oh, we stuff are. tagged. We're yeah. not going back. Constant was a male and Mrs. Rumford was a female. And Constant imagined he had the means of demonstrating, if given the opportunity, his unquestionable superiority. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually Creepy. a scene where Malachi's feeling intimidated. But I do think it implies... Kurt writes from a phallocentric place, and I just always want to be aware of that because that lens is there, and it's good to know about your biases, you know? So, like, there's many times throughout his books where it's like, as we all know, like, the man is the serious one who's getting things figured out. This hysterical woman is also there, and, like... Beatrice is a is a fully drawn female character who I think is fascinating and given a lot of her due. Yeah, very much unlike let's say Anita from Player Piano. Right, but and still big... the men are more of the focus. He's a he's a dude centric dude. Kurt yeah, Vonnegut. I feel like giving him some credit for because when we were looking at Player Piano, pretty much every female character in that is not yeah, that no well drawn. So like he's taken a step here. He like is. he's he's made some progress. Because Beatrice has levels that fascinate me that I want to think about forever. So yeah, but he also has lines like. Chrono will be born on Mars by you out of Beatrice. It's like, ah! <laughs> I love when we used words to take away from the woman's like role in childbirth. Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. I sired a boy via my wife. She was there for part of it. Yeah. <laughs> and in terms of like a big Vana Watt, mm-hmm. and I don't think I said it right up top, but Vana Watt is where we talk about the maybe troubling or worrisome aspects. Oh, I think that's clear from the inflection. Uh, Vana Watt! But the big one for me might be, and it's something we want to talk a lot about overall with the book, is how it handles religion and that kind of thing. Because this is, I feel like, either pitching a deist or atheist model of how the universe works. Like, either there's a watchmaker god, god the utterly indifferent, or there's none at all. And is he the, I don't know, quote-unquote, angry kind of atheist about it? Like, is he being dismissive of people who have faith? Or is he... I. I'm very sympathetic to Kurt, so I, I want to read it as like he's being sort of dismissive or casual about basically any system based on the supernatural and on things being just you'll, you'll be able to be confident that things will just work because you're lucky. I think I may be more comfortable with that controversial stance, but I feel, no, I yeah. Th- yeah, I think he's explicitly saying that all religions are fake mythology and yeah. coming from that place and saying yeah. that, but your Bill Mars of the world or whatever, right. then go on to say, and I position myself against that system and organization. I think it's harmful. I am opposed to right. religion. Like religion think, is a disease kind I, of. Whereas viewpoint. I think Kurt goes like, not that far. Right. Kurt says, I am scientifically minded and I do believe, this is me speaking for him, which I shouldn't do, but I'm also speaking for myself. By and large, I don't know everything and I admit that I could change my mind at any time. But it seems like all religions are historically rooted in these supernatural things that became mythologized and blah, blah, blah. So like any book of religion that gets into a lot of details, I believe they're lies. But (laughs) (laughs) Kurt is not saying, and I am not saying, that that's bad because he goes on to have a whole book whose main thrust is if everything's a lie, the whole definition of a chronosynclastic infundibulum, by the way, is a place in the universe where contradictory truths are both true. So he's obviously deeply interested in the idea of everything's a lie, everything's true. What is it to be true and a lie? And that sounds like hippie bullshit, but if you think about it hard enough, it's really true. Like, you don't know anything for sure. No one does. So what's wrong with saying, well, I choose to believe this and this and this because they are beliefs that 
mold my behavior in a way that I approve of. They keep me from murdering and raping and pillaging. And they make my family communicate well with me. Like, if your religion is working for you, it's working for you. I think that's all he's saying. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't make it true. And he's not, like, bagging on your religion specifically. Kurt Vonnegut doesn't believe anything is true. (laughs) (laughs) Or anything is as true as anything else. Like, I feel that he looks deep in the universe and says, like... Well, I don't, you know, nothing's anything. So whatever. Yeah, and I agree. And I think is I think that means that his main issue with religions is when they are utterly confident in super specific truths. Like yes. that's his is, that's his main issue is when they're like, no, marrying a person of the same sex is evil or something like that. Although, to pull an example. Well, we're in Vanuat. We'd be remiss not to mention the line about describing how much Salo admires Winston Niles Rumford. Salo loved Rumford, though there was nothing offensive in this love. That is to say, it was not homosexual. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's not great. (laughs) (laughs) Really reminded me of that Macklemore song, like, it's fun to be gay, but I'm not gay. Obviously, I'm straight. (laughs) (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. I just love Salo's home government is described as hypnotic anarchism. (laughs) But uh, yeah, and then another another Vana what? That I think is more subtle, but it did really ultimately disappoint me in B, is that B eventually has a monologue at the end where she comes to peace with her life by saying that she's glad she was used by Winston and she's glad she was raped by Malachi and she thanks him for using her because yeah. what good is a tool if you don't pick it up and use it? She'd rather be have been used for any kind of agenda than to have never been used for anything. And I don't know if a rape victim <laughs> would really ultimately be like, yeah. so thanks for your part in my life path that you raped me at that point. That really was one of the, even though it could be true that you're like, that was one of the twists in my turns and turns in my life that led me here. And I like my life. So I guess I'm grateful for the rape. I don't know if that fully connects. And I do think Vonnegut's yeah. being kind of like savior complexy there because she's like, yeah, I bitched about Winston using me, but really, I'm grateful. And I bitched about you raping me, but really, I'm grateful. <laughs> yeah. That bothered me. That actually, if we can have a tail end of this segment and of go course. into the next one. Yeah. It's time for a little bit of a segment called Kurt Blurt. Oh, geez. Kurt Blurt. Already. Because that part of the book where B is like, you know what, I'm glad I was used. I feel like these there's a super quotable and nice sentiment in it the way she says it because the way she says is the worst thing that could possibly happen to anybody would be to not be used for anything by anybody and i feel like if you excise that from the context of the book and just have a thing of like yeah one of the best things in life is to mean something and be important to somebody in their life you know like yeah great but still super problematic that the way we get a character to say that and to reach that point involves a lot of rape and abduction and things like that, probably. Yeah, and just that the most put-upon person, I would say, although being forced to strangle your best friend yourself is up there. Yeah. But B is definitely among the most put-upon people. If you take, like, fate or Rumford's plan, it really shafts her hard. It really shafts Malachi hard. And of course, all the people who die in the Martian invasion, which is another huge theme in Vonnegut's work, and it'll come up immediately again in Mother Night. Mother Night's sole focus seems to be this interesting moral hypothetical and then asking, 
did the ends justify the means? But I think he's already hinting at that with Winston's plan because yeah. there's moments where Winston seems godlike and totally altruistic because his goal is to create peace on earth for his people. There's right. also moments where he seems incredibly human and petty and yeah. where you question like when he calls B up on stage and just shits on her and shits on her and says how she represents the worst kind of person. Yeah. I was like, did you really found a religion to just bag on your ex-wife? That's like an elaborate. <laughs> you could have just written a live journal post, dude. Yeah. So there's times where he seems really petty. So I guess the question is. Do the ends justify the means, this world? Because we're explicitly told, like I said at the beginning of the book, world peace is achieved, and it's a lasting world peace, and everyone feels very spiritually connected, whatever that means. We can't even necessarily comprehend it. But was that worth Winston fucking over this whole generation of people and murdering all these Martians? Right. I don't know. <laughs> well, and, th- and actually, that another Kurt Blair to mind that I mm-hmm. would pull out is a line that I feel like kind of speaks to whether or not that made sense, but also the thrust behind it, which is, it's a quote, I think it's Winston, but he says, if there are such things as angels, I hope that they are organized along the lines of the mafia. Yeah. You know, that like the forces of good, let's hope they're at least really hardcore about good, because that's the way to bring it about. That's the way to uh, make it happen. It's a thankless job telling people it's a hard, hard universe they're in. (laughs) Oh, that's so good. (laughs) Which is probably, obviously, about Kurt Kurt. himself as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I have a ton. Let's switch off. Give me another. Yeah, yeah. Well, honestly, even just it's a prominent one, but the prophecy of what Malachi is going to say as a space wanderer when he returns and it's carved into the building and everything. But it's I was a victim of a series of accidents, as are we all. Is it just really that's a really excellent one. Yeah. And also and the very next page in mine as Malachi is sort of has seen that it was prophesizing, he's realizing what happened to him. The way Kurt writes the very end of that chapter is he laughed. The next line is, oh boy. Oh boy, what the And hell? then the next line is, what the hell? He laughed. Which yeah. is so, like, one of the best things he does as a writer is just arrange short statements. Yeah. Almost poetically and, and with great timing and punch, you know. And, and it's almost like a nice, quick, like, Jesus wept. You know, it's like a great, like, hit right there. And that's Unk basically enjoying what he does not know, but we know, is the moment before his utter doom and despair right and i get i think that's a really beautiful moment because it's questioning like is that any less a real moment even though it's under a false impression he thinks he's being welcomed home to earth in fact one of my characters is uh he says like the space wanderer's mind did not team with thoughts the function and purpose of the event unfolding in front of him was as clear as a three-legged milking stool. He had been forced <laughs> to suffer greatly, and now he was being rewarded greatly. Yeah. It's, again, this idea that we all have an innate, if not belief, desire, and yeah. it probably comes from having parents, that <laughs> someone or some force out there, karma, anything, will care, yeah. and if we're treated unfairly enough, we'll make it right someday. And, like, we'll punish people who are dicks eventually. Like, they'll get right. their comeuppance through karma or something. So he doesn't question, oh, no, is this bad? He arrives on Earth. Everyone welcomes him. And he's suffered so much that he's like, this makes sense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course, good, they're welcoming home because they know how sad I am right. that they're trying to make it right. And little does he know that, no, you're like a Justin Bieber or a... It- <laughs> You are an icon for us to build up and then tear down for our own purposes. It's not yeah, to help you. Right. No one cares about Malachi's actual life. Yeah. Least of all, Winston. Yeah, he's Marilyn Monroe. It's just like he's a symbol of <laughs> yeah. things, and that's it. 
And I, in that moment, uh, he says, so this is literally as Unk has climbed up the ladder and is looking, it's his last view of earth before he knows he'll never return, except I guess to die. Mm. (laughs) So, and it's while Winston's giving a sermon. His eyes saw a larger, more comforting sermon in the panorama of town, bay, and islands far below. The sermon of the panorama was that even a man without a friend in the universe could still find his home planet mysteriously, heartbreakingly beautiful. That's one of my favorites, too. Yeah. And all throughout, I mean, something that I think a lot of us already know is, like, the characters only have these brief moments where they can connect to what is beautiful about life, so they, like, they take it while they can get it. Yeah, (laughs) which is a big Vonnegut there's one there's a story from his life where his uncle Alex Bonnegut had a saying whenever things were just going well and the way Kurt describes it. it is like oh after he had a lot of good sour broughton and dark beer and a cigar and just got to like sit there he'd say if this isn't nice I don't know what it is yeah and it's and like, encourage it's just you like, to say it out loud yeah as like an incantation almost to be like I remember this is a nice time and this is the lesson time. that I feel like every culture learns and we know but we need constantly reminding I mean this is yeah. basic mindfulness this is what meditation is yeah Warren Zevon when told he was going to die a stomach cancer I think I think yeah his famous quote was enjoy every sandwich <laughs> stop and smell the roses is very powerful advice and among other secrets of life I think Kurt is layering in that like be mindful yeah of when things are good classic it's it's a good point we could all use reminding of yeah absolutely. so yeah that's definitely in there yeah you got another blurt i also it's just a phrasing thing but a couple times in the book he has so many little fun midwestern almost a little bit antique ways of describing a thing and wow. he calls a couple different things that they're in apple pie order Love it. Yes. Apple pie or well, like, like including like, so it shows it from Malachi's perspective and B's perspective at the very end of the book, everything that's happened to them. Yeah. Just describes it very coldly. Yeah. And then it describes what Chrono thinks about everything. Yeah. The fact that he was born as an alien, sent to <laughs> war that he didn't understand, right. then held in poverty until he was exiled for no fault of his own to a right. strange planet where he lives with the birds. <laughs> and it describes him as thinking. Chrono thought everything was in apple pie order. He had great faith that the mysterious forces of the universe would put everything back together again if they fell apart, as they always did. So it's like, it's just crazy to me and true that two people in the same life experience, one can be like, this is so fucked. Like, God must hate me. And another person who's never experienced anything better than that could be like, yeah, this is how life is. I don't understand what you're bitching about. Right. Like when Unk has no memories on the planet of Mars, I love that he immediately takes himself as an authority on life. One of his first thoughts, having no memory of anything is, but that's how life is sometimes. You know, that's how life goes. You look to the right and a sharp, debilitating pain strikes you in the skull. And you're like, that's not how life is. But if that's your first experience in life, you immediately generalize it to... You know, that's how life is. You have the metal rod in your skull. Everyone does. Because that's all I know. I don't right. know any better. Rods. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite Kurt Blurts is describing all the characters in the whole book. They lived in a universe composed of one trillionth part matter to one decillion parts black velvet futility. Oh, <laughs> so, so good. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like also as we're doing this, we could get into... Uh, segment which is related reading yeah related reading require a related <laughs> reading <laughs> it's fun this is because uh, we want to hit other works that we feel like 
do an amazing job with a lot of similar themes with which each of these Vonnegut works because you probably like reading people behind him besides him. And so do we one related reading for this, like the rest of Vonnegut, man, like, especially because if nothing <laughs> That's else, a cop out like, answer. <laughs> no, no, we'll have other actual things. But for one thing, like I was looking at a collection of Kurt Vonnegut's letters. There's a really good one edited by Dan Wakefield, who was like a fellow Indianapolis person and kind of followed a lot of his life as it was happening. But there was a long period of working on this novel and other novels. Like this was sort of co-written with other things he was working on. Kind of like kind of like Abbey Road and Let It Be came out of the same recording yeah. sessions. So there's a lot of crossover there with those Beatles albums. But he puts out Player Piano in 1952. Sirens of Titan isn't out till 1959. And before both of those, he was working on what became Cat's Cradle. While he was like getting Sirens of Titan published, he had started working on Mother Night. He was also writing short stories and trying to write a lot of other different things. So there's a huge gap between his first and second novel. But then the next couple novels come pretty quickly, partly because they were at least partly all part of the same kind of creative push. They were all part of kind of the same effort to get something out. Like while he's still working on Sirens of Titan, he sends a letter in, let's see, 1959 to his publisher Scribner's who had published Player Piano saying, hey, you guys have had this Cat's Cradle draft for like two years. Are you going to do anything with it? I would like to send it other places. So that means he was working on that as he did this one. They're all sort of one interconnected burst. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one really, but I think they all interconnect and it's almost like his statement in this novel needed other novels too, to me, to like fully get out and be expressed. But there's characters in this book that I even wonder, although he did live much longer and write many more books, but there were characters that I was like, I wonder if he ever initially thought that character will one day shape their own story and own universe. You know what I mean? Yeah. You see the literal ones that you know are there because her name is Wanda June and the play is about a character called Wanda June. (laughs) So I'm like, well, man, I really wonder if this random one-off character in chapter seven was gonna ever propel their own story. But yeah, that's one of the great things about it. The interconnectedness is just so it makes, it gives you the same feeling of confidence as when you see Arrested Development where you're like, Oh, these people knew exactly what they were doing from square one. Like there was no timidity. Right. He knew what he wanted to get done. The whole structure was just set. It was, yeah. And the foresight, I mean, sci-fi authors do this all the time, but like, did you notice Vonnegut totally nailing the internet in Sirens of Titan? Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, like the way the, other, the, the Tralfamidorians communicate? Salo describes how decisions are made on Tralfamidor, and he says, it's like a cloud <laughs> that everyone gives a little puff of mist to, and then the cloud does all the heavy thinking for everybody. I don't mean there's really a cloud. Like, he's literally saying cloud. It's insane. This yeah. is in 1959. I don't mean there's really a cloud. I just mean it's something like that, but with information. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, Skip, which is what he calls Winston, there's no sense in trying to explain it to you. All I can say is there aren't any meetings. And then I added, it's a series of tubes. But yeah, we're still nominally in the required reading section, right? Oh, yeah. Related reading. <laughs> related. It's related fun. reading. What are, your, uh, what are your related readings for that? Oh, boy. Well, I'd be <laughs> remiss if I didn't mention the song Sirens of Titan by Al Stewart. Have you heard that? I actually haven't. I was going to oh, wait. Oh, my gosh. I freaking love it. He wrote a straight up Sirens of Titan, basically the... Song is a plot synopsis, so if you wanted to skip this episode, you could listen to the song Sirens of Titan by Al Stewart and get it. I was drawn by the sirens of Titan, and so 
And the uh, the chorus is, I was a victim of a series of accidents, as are we all. Direct quote. Really good song. Then stuff that I already kind of mentioned. Like, I think it truly does deal with nihilism, though it's not. it doesn't necessarily embrace nihilism. But I would cite basically all the later works of the Coen brothers, from No Country through Burn After Reading and True Grit. Oh, man. All of which I consider... Unique and inside Lewin Davis, for that matter. Yeah. They're unique in the sense that they exist in a universe where there is not karma and there is not a God force that punishes or rewards. Yeah. There's only the random chaos of what affects what and stuff happening. Sure. And I feel like the Coens made a very clear decision that they now believe that, or at least they now project movies where that's true. Because before that, I mean, you got O Brother and Hudsucker Proxy. I mean, in Hudsucker Proxy, an angel comes down and stops everything because <laughs> the good guy deserves a happy ending. It's explicitly the opposite of nihilism. Right. So I'd cite all the nihilist Coen Brothers stuff. Also The Watchmen, because of the reasons we said. V for Vendetta, all, another Alan Moore comic. That oh, wow. I think yeah. the movie did a disservice by simplifying too much. For example, when I read V for Vendetta, it led me to become curious about and understand for the first time what anarchism is. Like literally what the political beliefs of someone who understands what they're saying when they say it says I'm an anarchist, what that means. And the word anarchism has gotten a bad rap. Anarchism is a very interesting and viable, I think, school of political thought. And V for Vendetta does a great job of explaining the basics and getting you interested in learning more about it. And I would say so to Sirens of Titan. And then last but not least, I hate recommending this guy because he's a homophobe and objectionable to me for other reasons. But Orson Scott Card has a little series called Ender's Game. Yeah. And everyone knows Ender's Game, and it's great, and it has one of the great like Shyamalan-level twists of all sci-fi time that makes you lose your shit and recommend it to all your friends in high school. <laughs> I actually like the sequel, Speaker for the Dead, more, yeah, because yeah, yeah. it is about basically the, the Martian invasion, and it's almost a book about Winston Niles Rumford from his point of view, because in Speaker for the Dead, you have Ender, who is responsible for a space massacre himself, personally responsible, right. also being the spokesperson for humanity's attempt to grieve over the massacre and come to terms with our culpability in the massacre of this alien yeah. species that we come to empathize with and realize we're just as deserving of life as humans are. And it's basically, now the only difference is Ender, when he did the massacre, was being used, whereas Winston, the Martian thing was his plan all along. Although the Tralfamadorian Ray was using him. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'll stick to that. Speaker for the Dead is really interesting because it's basically, in Sirens of Titan, you constantly want to know what Winston is thinking. And Speaker for the Dead is a whole book where all you do is know what Winston is thinking, essentially, the Winston character. Because Ender is very high status, and he basically has the most knowledge and is controlling everything in that book, and you're constantly in his head. So it was satisfying in the way that Sirens is mysterious. (laughs) (laughs) That's I never would have put those together. 
and I, I super want to get to movie stuff in a bit. But also, yeah. my related reading for Sirens of Titan is one of them's another Bradbury short story. It's called Dark They Were and Golden Eyed. And it's about people who go to Mars. But Ray Bradbury does just tons of Martian stuff. So almost mm-hmm. a lot of his work is a fit for this. But it's about people who go to Mars and what that does to them, like how it changes their identity. And I feel like that's such a fit with this book in terms of both whether you can control who you are at all, but also going from place to place. And also Dark Thrower and Goldeneye jumps out to me too, because it feels like a story about moving from the Midwest to LA. Cause it's so different. Mm. Uh, that speaks to me, but it's a fantastic story about just free will and like the twist in it and the ending are all great. I won't spoil it. Nice. And then the other one is a more time travel based thing. It's called Mozart in mirror shades. And it's a short story by, Bruce Sterling and Lewis Shiner. Two um, names that mean shiny. <laughs> <laughs> hey, anyway, go. continue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's, I feel like it and Sirens of Titan both get at the way time travel can make us like lose touch with our humanity and like whether anybody means anything or any events mean anything. Because, Dr. Manhattan syndrome. Right, Winston exactly. Niles Rumford syndrome. <laughs> and it, because Mozart and Mirror Shades is about a world where essentially a company's found a way to go to different parts of earth history and rather than that time paradox of like if you change anything things go wrong it's a situation where if you change anything that just becomes a new branch of time that doesn't matter and so the story takes place or it matters as much or as little as any other branch of time right but the other branch of time continues to exist as well right yeah exactly and so the story follows people who work for this company in a base they've set up in like 1800 salzburg austria and it's a place where our real modern life is like seeping in. And so Mozart has heard all his own symphonies and he's uh-huh. like, oh, great. I'm going to make like prog rock and craft work stuff now, obviously. I've, yeah, uh, I always, whenever I hear specifically someone's cell phone ring and it's, I'm like, how fucking mind blowing, if you could even explain the concept of a telephone ringing in your pocket to Beethoven, if you could be like, listen to this shit, dude, right, right. Look what you this did. is your shit <laughs> as like MIDI bullshit out of someone's phone to let them know anyone in the world is trying to contact them. Can you conceive how integral right. this tune you thought of is? To this person probably doesn't know you wrote this or anything about you, but this is their ringtone. Right, That's right. nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and so it has that, like it plays out that as a story. Yeah. And the modern people are in 1800s Austria to like steal oil, steal art, have sex, <laughs> do drugs. Because like, they it's don't exclusively... care if they screw the that branch of time because they don't yeah. even live in it, right? And they openly tell people, they're like, oh, you're not real, so it doesn't matter. And it just you're plays not, out all the are. different... They're just not real to you, you exactly. piece of shit. Right, and so it plays <laughs> that out as a story, and it's phenomenal. And quick shout out to my mom, because she introduced me uh, to it. And she's a big reader of fantasy and sci-fi, uh, and, and I probably wouldn't be doing this enough for her. She's great. Nice. Uh, but anyway, that is the other related reading, I think, for that. That and made me realize I want to shout out The Stranger by Albert Camus. <laughs> oh, great. Which I think a lot of people, uh, it's inaccessible because it's very, very bleak and not only truly nihilist, but detached nihilist. If anyone out there who's suffered from what I will call, but don't mean to insult anyone else by calling it that, like a real depression, in the sense that I mean depression is not being sad, it's losing access to your emotional state. And they call it like flat affect, becoming really just like, oh, okay, Uh and detached. 
is sort of what people consider more a clinical depression, I guess, or an episode of major depression. Anyway, The Stranger is very, very boring if you're not reading deeply into it, because uh, you probably have heard at least the basic story. A guy goes to a beach with his friends and shoot someone for no reason explicitly you're in his mind okay you're in his mind there's a cure song called killing an arab about it but the book basically follows a dude who is detached emotionally from everything in life one day he's at the beach he has a gun in his hand he sees a guy the sun shines in his eyes in a way he doesn't like so he shoots the guy there's no explanation given of how that makes sense you know the way the human mind works it's like it's a book that really is it seems boring and inaccessible and almost like nonsense, but yeah. if you delve deeply enough in it, it's dealing with things like, it's something Boaz says, I think, or no, no, sorry, it's in Mother Night. But it oh, is yeah. a curt line, which is, the only thing I know for sure is that everyone's just crazy and they just do whatever and they don't know why. Right. And there's a lot of scientific studies backing that up, like that show that the nerves that fire that make your muscles move happen before the nerves that fire that decide what to do oh, right, yeah. in certain cases. So more than you think, you're making decisions and then in retrospect being like, well, I probably did that because I like that person. Nope, you did it because your mirror neurons fired and you were in a situational context where they had high status and you felt the authoritative need to do what they wanted, so you did. Then in retrospect, you thought, I chose to do that because I agree with their point or I whatever. Yeah. The stranger really explicitly deals with that, like that question of, why do we do the things we do? And isn't it often just for no reason? Like, <laughs> why were you grumpy right then? Well, you think it's because of a complex relationship you have with your girlfriend? It could be because you had low blood sugar at that moment. So that's right. The Stranger. Anyway, this all circles around to The Stranger has one of my favorite moments is it opens with him at the funeral of his mother, whom he loved very much. Oh. And all he can think to describe is the coffin seemed roughly five feet by three feet. I could see that there were small screws, three at each corner, beveled to a level depth of like a quarter of an inch. And as a kid, you're like, why is this book so boring? <laughs> but as an adult, I see that that's intentionally, you're supposed to be thinking, who the fuck would be focused on that at their mother's funeral? Right. And that's your doorway into questioning why this guy thinks this way. And yeah. a curt blurt is <laughs> when he's strangling Stony on Mars, they go into the thoughts going through his head, and they are... He didn't necessarily want to strangle the guy, but he was given a direct order, and you always do direct orders, so he did it. As he strangled the guy, he noticed that the stake he was tied to was composed of quartz, alkali, feldspar, mica, and traces of tourmaline and hornblende. And I'm like, that's the stranger shit right there. (laughs) Like, I just love that technique of getting into someone's mind, and they're not at all focused on what they should be and why. Is very interestingly. So that was a way too long of a plug for The Stranger, (laughs) which most people will not enjoy. (laughs) But uh, if you want a short version, listen to the Cure song, Killing an Arab. It'll give you the basics. (laughs) That's all I got for Sirens, though, yeah. Yeah, same. I think we should do two more segments, probably, and then head off. And one of them is... Movie time! Tick, tick, tick. Action. That was a clock ticking and then a director calling action. Ah, Movie time. (laughs) Yeah, this is this is something we want to do with at least a few of Kurt's works because either they are movies or this one had ought to be a movie. And in real life there was a long process of trying to make it a movie and people never quite making that happen. So I'm not the only one. 
smart enough to realize it would make a good movie. Yeah, I, just I think they're the one to do it. It'd be out. great. Yeah, it's it's the only dream of adapting anything I have is if anyone's going to make the Sirens of Titan movie, I want it to be me. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and very early on in its existence, that was kind of the talk, like, how do we do it? There's a letter Kurt wrote to his longtime champion, who also in reading his stuff and trying his stuff, there's a guy named Knox Berger, who he went to Cornell with, who was his short story editor at Collier's Magazine and then moved on to Dell and helped get Sirens of Titan published. Sometimes who, like, I ask myself where he gets these stupid names. Like, we're going <laughs> to we're gonna deal with a dude named August Crap Tower in the next book. Yeah. And it's like, no, he was surrounded in real life. He had lots right. of examples. He knew lots of people with stupid, stupid names. names. Yeah. It makes sense that he, <laughs> when he's thinking of a name for somebody, he's like, what's dumb? Right. Winston what's, Niles Rumford. What's a lame? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> And he writes to Knox in December of 1959, just a couple of months after the book's published at all. And he says, hey, by the way, thank you for showing my book to movie people. So like right away, they're working on, hey, look at this science fiction epic. People love movies about all this crazy stuff. Let's do that. And then also the movie rights have bounced around a little bit over time. And one of the main people to own them was Jerry Garcia of The Grateful Dead. He was working for a long time on getting a script going and making that happen. And one of the other people who had worked, who worked for a lot of years to try to get it made is a guy named Robert B. Wide weed. I don't know exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's a big Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Deeply involved in his history. I think he produced on Reservoir Dogs. I think that guy has this crazy history in terms of his career. Not crazy, but just awesome. Like I know him basically from being involved in, Tarantino movies and Woody Allen movies and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, those are three things. Like, there's another big one, and it's Curb Your Enthusiasm. Like, what a time in entertainment! What a guy! So he also tried for a number of years to get a movie made, and it's still just out there. There are other books that have been made movies. According to IMDb, he is currently working on a documentary called Kurt Vonnegut: Unstuck in Time. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I would like to see it. So there you go. Yeah. Coming up, 2017. But anyway, and with Siren specifically, like, what's dreamcasting? How do we, you know, who do we get on screen to be the the characters in this movie and make it uh, come to life? Yeah. Also, I feel like I have to correct. I think we're thinking of someone else with the Quentin stuff because oh. I see nothing. <laughs> oh, never mind. Just so Woody that, Allen and Kurt. That yeah. would be much weirder if he was also, yeah. But yeah, Woody Allen all up in here and Curb Your Enthusiasm all up in here. And I don't know who I'm thinking of as far as Quentin, but someone will know and oh, correct us Lawrence very Bender? shrilly. That's who it is. Yeah. yeah. I was like, it's whoever is telling them not to worry about who's <laughs> called Mr. Pink. Yeah. <laughs> that guy. Okay, yeah. But we're, are we talking casting now? Is that where we wound up? Yeah, I think. Because <laughs> there's a lot of juicy roles in this, I feel like. Yeah. Especially probably Malachi, because you get to be everything from... Malachi. I can't believe we haven't even talked about... Malachi Constant is Latin for faithful messenger. Yep. And he ends up being instrumental in the delivery of the message. Yeah. Which is nothing. Right. And... <laughs> but he's faithful about it. The only person to ever really truly be kind to him is salo who's also a faithful messenger yeah there's a lot of good stuff i oh, swear man. we could do a part two but <laughs> <laughs> let's start with malachi yeah the nominal protagonist one that came to mind and then i immediately rejected because i realized it's only because of his pre-existing roles not that he couldn't do it but we may have already seen him do it too much but sam rockwell 
Yeah. But I realize that's in my head because of Moon. Moon down, And, yeah. of course, Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah. And so then my backup, which I've actually come to like even more, Chuatelagia for, I oh. think would be fantastic Malachi. Yeah, he would be great. Yeah? You have to nail a range of like vapid jerk and, and brainwashed. Sad and sad. Because you also need to like look at a sunset and have us know with no lines that you've endured intense trauma, yeah. but you also have a spiritual side where you think it's beautiful that the sunset is there. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, 12 Years a Slave, he knocked that out of the park, that kind <laughs> of vibe. <laughs> and we know, thanks to Serenity, that he's masterful with a sword, if that's needed. Oh, yeah. Go with the steel. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. And let's get... Who else do we get? We should probably get, like, B. Winston, Salo's voice. Okay. Oh, I didn't even think about Salo. Salo, right. <laughs> no, right, right, right. You t- it's, it's Mario Mario all over. But, well, you go. You give me one, because I got, I, think I don't want to, like, poison your mind with, with my picks. With B, I honestly, I, I think a good person for it would be Vera Farmiga. I think she would. I she's do in, not know who that is. She's in uh, The Departed. She's, like, the psycho- the main female okay. lead, like, yeah. the psychologist person. And she's in Bates Motel. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Just the range of stuff that she goes through, mm. and particularly the frustration with everyone that's well deserved. In terms of old money, that also makes me think of Meryl Streep, which might even be too obvious. Like, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> just that she's done those. But I gotta say, I think my B pick, I would still go with Tilda. Yeah. The Swints. <laughs> I mean, I would basically have Tilda Swinton from Snowpiercer. Just be Beatrice. <laughs> I think she's so good at the above everything. Oh, like that Margaret Thatcher she's doing in Snowpiercer? Yeah, like, the, yeah. yeah the very British and proper, like, or even, uh, yeah, that concept from Breaking Bad where it's like, have them all killed, but I don't want to see the bodies, you know? Like that very proper above everything. Tilda has range, but I mean, she can nail that yeah, time absolutely. and again, we know. Yeah. And then uh, how about Winston? How about our completely honest? Because this is somebody who potential Winston, very patrician, but also eventually a jerk and unstuck. And well, it's yeah, he has to be the voice of God, but also tip human. Like Salo says in one of the final chapters, that many people would be surprised to know that in the end, Winston was a rather parochial human being after all, because he projects himself very much as a Doctor Manhattan. Like, not only do I not care, I can't care. Like, I see all of time, so nothing matters to me. But that's not true, because he, (laughs) at the end, he's petty towards Salo because of the way he was used. Salo calls him out on it. He's like, but you're being so, like, human-y right now. And he's like, yeah, well, (laughs) fuck you. (laughs) I'm leaving. (laughs) So I think you have to hit both. So I originally thought Morgan Freeman, because he's so godlike, and it's just obvious but right but then i was i hate to people will probably get upset i don't know if morgan has the depth of range beyond just being high status and godly or yeah. maybe we as a movie going society have not given him the opportunity to do anything else yeah one or the other for sure like yeah but like, like yeah, yeah i was like morgan freeman for sure for the first half of the book but in the yeah. second half of the book i didn't i didn't know anymore and then i started thinking chris cooper or garrett oh. dillahunt but this is me just picking people who I truly believe could do literally anything that I need them to do. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Winston's the hardest for me. Partly because it's so hard, I kind of want to go a little bit out of the box. And I think my pick would be Steve Martin. 
I think he could do, he'd have almost a harder time being the godlike patrician. But I think if he went down to his, like, if you see him in Shop Girl, he can yeah, really be very. I didn't, but I believe you. Know, you. He can be very muted and very. And then Tom Steve, Mar- Steve Martin's <laughs> so good at falling apart, like, especially his stand up. He's so good yes. at, like, just like, oh, can I get a little mood lighting? And then he doesn't get it and he flips, you know? He, yeah. he, I think he could be a surprisingly excellent person at it. I recently just rewatched Little Shop of Horrors with Jen and. Oh my God, his performance in that. I've never actually like, seen that movie. Really? Yeah. You got to watch it. You could even find just the segment. I mean, it's a great film, but just the segment with Bill Murray and Steve Martin in the dentist's office. Like, Steve Martin's acting choices are so bold and he nails them like mathematically. He's just awesome. He's very, yeah. And you know, he's not funny, like a person to person, or he's famously like a thinker and a planner and a rehearser. Right. And then he nails it. And then Bill Murray's famously the opposite of that. Yes. <laughs> and it's a fabulous scene with both of them killing it at what they do respectively. Oh, yeah. And that's really, really good. So yeah, I could see Steve Martin for sure. Winston will give me trouble forever. Yeah. In my mind, when I close my eyes, I guess the face that comes up is Chris Cooper for me. Or God bless him, Alan Rickman might be good. A little, yeah. maybe a little too, but that's because I'm, I know him as villains. So. Right. You also want someone that almost the opposite because he actually does turn out to have some villainous traits, I believe, on this read through, but you don't want him to project that. Right. You want him to be everyone's dad. Like Norman Rockwell would be good, or like Tom Hanks, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If Tom Hanks yeah, lost he'd be a little right. weight. Yeah. I think, feel like he's a little round to be Winston right now. Yeah, he could do it. He could do it. He could do it. He could get it there. Yeah. And um, lastly, Salo's voice. Well, okay. Well, is that which I, I think is a surprise? Are that we, we didn't skipping really... Boaz because oh. obviously Denzel? Yeah, I think that's like a done deal. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> yeah, he could. Oh, he could really. Yeah, oh. training day him. Yeah, but not just that he would destroy the monologue. That yeah. I found a place where I am not hurting anything. Yeah, slam dunk right. and a uh, slam dunk. Yeah, yeah Denzel. Voice of Salo. You gotta go. I have to I, think about. I have because I yeah, I'm, I'm kind of springing a little bit, but I I can almost see a very young actor like almost a kid actor because salo is a robot but he's also like starting to be human just through ex- exposure sure. to winston and starting to figure out what being a person is like you know so i could i could almost see either a young actor or somebody who plays young like michael Sarah. i just played a pretty good telltale games point and click adventure called broken age yeah and Elijah Wood was the voice of the main character. Oh. And thinking back on that voice, I could also see Elijah Wood. That would be great. Because no, he would, yeah. seems like a kid who really wants to be your friend, and then bad things happen to him. But he's good at that. Yeah. <laughs> or no, like, he, can, he can age down so easily. Totally. Yeah. And I think... In his spirit. Which, is, which he uses to great advantage in movies like Maniac, where he plays against it. But like in the same way where I see Jake Gyllenhaal... And I immediately feel menaced (laughs) or (laughs) imbalanced or like darkness. When I see Elijah (laughs) Wood, I immediately feel like a child that needs to be protected from the darkness, which I think is what you want for Salo. Because then you get the whole dichotomy that Vonnegut's pushing where Salo's like, Salo's the nicest, most genuine, forgiving, selfless character that you meet. Yeah. Yet he ruined everything. He's the worst one. His people are the scourge of our entire existence. 
Yeah. So I definitely think you need someone sweet. It seems like we're agreed there. You need like a sweetie pie. Definitely. Yeah. To be ruining everything and be like <laughs> upset, like, oh, I'm sorry that I screwed your whole civilization up. Oh, geez. I didn't oh, know. man. Yeah. Why are you so mad at me? It <laughs> hurts my feelings bad. Yeah. That reminds me of another uh, required reading if you're a sci fi fan Heinlein, Stranger in a Strange Land. Yeah, yeah. Sailor reminded me a lot of Valentine Michael Smith. The Martians in Stranger in a Strange Land being creatures that are so emotionally sensitive that if you yell at them, like by human standards, if a human were right. to be like, you cut me in line, you son of a so-and-so, <laughs> they will choose to self-terminate because they wow. can also control their bodies. Yeah. They would be like, rather than deal with the mental stress of that, I'll just end my life journey now and shut down. Yeah. So it's like, how does humanity interact with a species whose sensitivity is on that level? They don't understand the nature of conflict, etc. And I feel like Sela's right there. Yeah, that even the harmoniums too, they like vibrations. And then when Boaz plays music music for them, it kills a bunch of them because it's right. like too much food. Yeah, it's too nice. It's, yeah, you live he has in to a, like cushion the speakers. Yeah. A universe of very fragile beings. Yeah. All right, what about director? Oh, that Cohen's talk is pretty convincing. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, but I'm also trying to think of, you know, whose style I really think matches the tone that I would want. Yeah. And I could see, well, I guess this is a cop out, but. I guess as writer-director, I think Charlie Kaufman would be a good tone for it. Yeah. I also want to see... Well, I wrote Edgar Wright, but the more I think about it, I don't really want Edgar Wright doing it. I just feel obliged to say Edgar Wright for any directing job because he's the best one. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but really, after I thought about it long and hard, I think if someone else wrote the script so that he couldn't really bog it down, Darren Aronofsky oh. would nail it. Because I want... Even though it's really funny and light a lot of the time, or like crazy or zany, which I would want to maintain, yeah. I think the plot points maintain that because like crazy sci fi stuff happens. But if you gave it to Darren Aronofsky, you automatically get the heaviness and darkness, and that the universe is full of darkness. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And yeah. I, th I feel like it needs that. It's like Hitchhiker's Guide if the universe were truly frightening. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of because Hitchhiker's Guide tackles like, What's the meaning of life? And there are things as sweeping as crazy aliens controlled this whole sector of the galaxy or whatever. Right. But it's all a joke. And I feel like right. the key difference is this is not a joke. There are jokes, but the backdrop is terrifying. Yeah. Like it's the he blows up the it's, earth and it's, uh, you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, the backdrop for Sirens of Titan is the utter meaninglessness of the void that is the universe. And yeah. it's always the backdrop. So, Darren. Yeah. After seeing Noah, I think I I could see him taking a crack at it. Yeah, any of them, and I and and I'd throw in Todd Haynes. I think. Now, who is that? He did. Uh, I'm not there, which is that Bob Dylan movie where there's oh, multiple yeah. Dylans, and he's yeah. done a lot of things with like sad patrician people and things like right, that. Right, right. And uh, and also a lot of movies that go dark places or big places on and yeah. off in a big way. I think he'd be great. Gilliam, Terry Gilliam, also. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, could be. It's Dope. a good, like, big director movie, yeah. And off a movie, I think we can go into Vonnegut News. So it goes. Yeah. We, uh, in all these episodes, we just want to update you. This just in, so it goes in Midwest America. <laughs> so we, we want to update you on what's going on with Kurt right now. And uh, this is your late October and early November 2016 
Vonnegut news. One thing that's come out is a thing Vonnegut said back in the day where he said that Bob Dylan was a bad poet. And Bob Dylan recently won the Nobel Prize for Literature. So that quote's kind of resurfaced. That's not only one, but one and doesn't care and is not responding to their... Like yeah, the Nobel Committee right. has now said, well, we consider it rude, but what are we going to do? Right. If we have the ceremony and he doesn't show up, we'll just have the ceremony. Right. It'll just be, he got it. But he's yeah. not posted anything saying he appreciates it. He doesn't care. But I got to say, I'm with Bobby D on this one because he didn't apply to it. A random organizing body somewhere in the world of strangers yeah. said, we've gotten together and chosen to honor you. It's not rude to not respond. <laughs> like, I really think <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Like, that's strangers. You're not beholden to respond to someone just because they message you. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say and if it, he's going to collect the money, it would be nice if he showed up. Yeah, probably. But, but if he like just cold shoulders the whole thing, I wouldn't lose any respect for him. Or I don't think it's that rude because, my yeah. God, like, he's an old man. He's been to millions of award ceremonies. Like, you can't get a, an obligatory Bob Dylan appearance because you award him something. Right. He doesn't have to come. Yeah. yeah I don't care. <laughs> it's, in, it's in keeping with his vibe, I think. It's totally. Like, yeah. It's great. But the true question is, I happen to think he deserves it and did pioneer, as they said, a new form of American poetic expression. Vonnegut, my favorite writer of all time, disagrees. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> I, I agree with you and with the Nobel Oh, you people. like him. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dylan's such a person who got people into... Like, I, I thought about song lyrics more because of him. Like, I just started paying attention to that stuff at a fundamental level because of yeah. Bob Dylan. Like, it's, he's, he's the guy. Yeah. And when it makes me sad that story is no longer the center of most popular music, which it isn't, when I think back to the good old days or whatever, he is like the gold standard of like, man, for him to be putting out number ones, it's crazy how much people were focused on the lyrics and the story of the song. Yeah. Or, right. you know, because like his songs are not crafted to be like drug like addictive hooks that are dance music. They get, <laughs> if you're not impressed by what he, the actual content of what he's saying, you won't like him because it's just a monotonous four chord repeat thing. Right. So, yeah, back off, he's Kurt. Great. Yeah, <laughs> lay off. And, uh, and then the other chunk of Vonnegut news is just Vonnegut art and things you can go see in your world. In Park Forest, Illinois, shout out to the Chicago suburbs, uh, there's a place called the National Veterans Art Museum, and they're doing an exhibition of Kurt Vonnegut's visual art from this November to May of next year in 2017. And a lot of drawings of buttholes, probably. <laughs> Most likely. Very and easy. He, he loved to rattle off those butthole drawings. Yeah. <laughs> and he's an army veteran, so perfect for that museum. And then the other thing, which we're considering going to see if we can, Atwater Village Theater, which is in greater LA, it's like yeah. northeast LA, essentially, they're doing a play called Vonnegut USA based on a set of his short stories. It's running now through November 20th. And I think we should, yeah, we should try and do it late in the run. We should tell people in case people from the podcast want to come out. Yeah. Like we should say what should, and we'll live tweet that shit. Yeah. We'll ruin the whole performance. Let's, let's record an episode while they're performing in front of us. <laughs> this Just is okay. Quietly. Just yeah. shout it. Yeah. Um, it's pretty good so far. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> and so, and that's the Kurt going on in the world. And if this brings us, I think to pretty much the end. Wow. And also we should say that we have social media places, not just to tell you when we have episodes, but Heck to yeah. like talk to you because this is kind of book clubby and we'd like to. We're at on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kurt Vonneguys, at Kurt Vonneguys on Twitter and at Kurt Vonneguys on Instagram. 
And I know this and Player Piano are kind of all coming out at once, so it was hard to talk to us in the run-up to it. But let us know if you have yeah. things you want to talk about, especially with Sirens, because we have so much more to say, I think. You know. Mother Night is next. And Mother Night is next. FY it'll, your eyes. Yeah, it'll <laughs> most likely be out about a month from now when uh, we're putting when out this. When you're hearing this. Yeah. And so if you want to be all book clubby with us about it, give Mother Night a read. It's it's low-key one of my favorite monogates. I think it's worth a look. Yeah, and I'm yeah. thinking the synopsis section of Mother Night won't take nearly as long, which will be good. Yeah, this it's one, hard when you're introducing so many sci-fi elements. I was like, "Oh boy, we got to explain goofballs." Right. But Mother Night is like, you know how the Nazis were. There's yeah. Nazis. This happens to them. Yeah. <laughs> America, Germany. Yeah, what do you, you need? A roadmap? Yeah. You know? It's, yeah, yeah. Speaking of casting, I'm just gonna throw it right out there. The American agent who recruits <laughs> Howard Campbell in Mother Night, Mother Night. John Goodman cameo, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So comedy. So we'll get there. So comedy. But yeah, please do uh, join us. There's so much more to say about this. I honestly could easily do a part two, but (laughs) I understand why we might not. But yeah, yeah, let us talk to you about it. Tell us if you would join the Church of God, the Utterly Indifferent on our Facebook page. Yeah. Or found your own competing one. There Ah, you go. Battles. And uh, we'll form our own caress. Yeah. Ooh, please do that with us. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Michael. And we'll see you next time around for Mother Night. If this isn't nice, what is? Yeah.